Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, joined by Ian Clary. We're continuing our study of the Summa of Thomas Aquinas. We kind of got waylaid in question one of book one, so we're going to stay here. We want to treat, I think, uh, what is it, Article 6 through 10 on Holy Scripture. And as we get going, Ian wanted to read, I guess, a part of Article 6, depending on what version you're reading. The full yeah, version right. is only part of it, and uh, it's basically on theology as wisdom. Yeah, so we're we're using the 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 creeft uh, abridgment of the Summa. And so he, in this one, he doesn't give any of the objections or replies to objections or, or anything like that. Um, he's just giving us a, a text uh, just from the, I answer that on the sixth article of question one, uh, whether this doctrine is the same as wisdom. And I've, I've just, the more I've been reading, uh, not just in Thomas himself, but just like in, in like, kind of like, I guess you'd say Thomistic literature, but I'm, I'm including reformed people here as well as other Catholics that like, man, like the, the whole idea of theology as wisdom is absolutely key to any of our understanding of just theology itself. And so this is this idea of kind of like sapiential theology or wisdom theology. So I'll just read this paragraph. So Thomas says, I answer that this doctrine is wisdom above all human wisdom, not merely in any one order, but absolutely. For since it is the part of a wise man to arrange and to judge, and since lesser matters should be judged in the light of some higher principle, he is said to be wise in any one order who considers the highest principle in that order. Thus, in the order of building, he who plans the form of a house is called wise and architect, in opposition to the inferior labels, uh, laborers who trim the wood and make ready the stones. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 3.10, as a wise architect, I have laid a foundation. Again, in the order of all human life, the prudent man is called wise inasmuch as he directs his acts to a fitting end, and then quotes Proverbs 10.23, wisdom is prudence man. Therefore, he who considers absolutely the highest cause of the whole universe, namely God, is most of all called wise. Hence, wisdom is said to be knowledge of divine things, as Augustine says in De Trinitate 12.14. But sacred doctrine is essentially, uh, essentially treats of God viewed as the highest cause, not only so far as he can be known through creatures, just as philosophers knew him, that which is known of God is manifest to them, Romans 119, but also so far as he is known to himself alone and revealed to others. Hence, sacred doctrine is especially called wisdom. So I just love what he's doing there, right? He's like saying, okay, like the person who has like the highest, understands the highest cause of whatever it is they're looking at. And here he gives the example of an architect, right? That's the person who's the most wise on the job site because he understands how the whole building works because he's the one who's designed it. He's the cause of it all. And so here, right. It's like, we are to see that, Oh, like the pursuit of God is the highest cause of all things is what makes you absolutely wise. I like the language he uses there twice of absolute mm. wisdom. And it's not merely he says, because it's, Oh, the God of the philosophers, like philosophy, you know, as a pursuit of wisdom can show you this. It's actually, no, it's the opposite. It's because God himself, knows himself perfectly and then reveals that knowledge to us and any of us who pursue sacred doctrine or theology we're the ones who will be the pursuing the highest wisdom because god the who is the absolute of wisdom is revealing that to us it's like that's what theology is it's like uh, you know you can we become i sometimes can get like this i can become very enamored with philosophy and read all this kind of stuff and like, well, I'm thinking these great thoughts, you know, you're, you're reading along with like, um, you know, Descartes or something. And uh, it's like, no, none of this, none of this is really anything when you compare it to what the true wisdom is, which is actually the pursuit of God uh, as he's revealed in scripture. 
I also think this illustrates again how Thomas is kind of a master of common sense yeah. because the analogy he gives is so correct. Like an architect who has designed a building, wrote up blueprints, organized labor, said what calculation must hold up which wall, etc., is evidently wise, right? We just say it's wise. Yeah. Whereas with someone maybe who's like a 16-year-old high schooler who does a good job of laying down brick in a path, like that's a good job. Sure. But there's a, there's a comparison to be made between the two that is so straightforward and obvious. So when it comes to theology or life in general, if you know the highest cause, the sort of mind behind all things, God, then it makes sense that wisdom is a good way to characterize scripture, uh, uh, theology. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because like when you think of it the way, you know, when you think of wisdom, wi wisdom is is more practical than just pure knowledge, right? Just right. like filling your head with information. It's 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 really like a it's like an embodied knowledge that kind of comes through you as you live well in the world. And so, you know, like you say, like the whole idea of common sense, it's like it's just it's living, living well in light of God, who's the first principle of everything. And and knowing him as he's revealed himself to us in scripture so that we can actually just live well in the world. Right. Um, as he intended us to do. Um, so, I mean, it just put it to me, it just puts like theology on. So you understand why, if, if you take this kind of stuff seriously, why theology would have long been considered to be the queen of the sciences and philosophy is the handmaiden. And because it's there's what what like it, it invigorates me as a, as somebody who's a tra trained in theology and teaches theology. It invigorates me in that like oh this has such consequence to what we're doing, you know. Um, and whether we teach theology in an academic setting or in a church, um, this is so important. And Thomas is just really helpful in like clarifying that importance for us. I remember talking to a pastor once. But I don't remember the exact words, but the sense was. Uh, he communicated to me, well, I studied theology in seminary, so I don't do it anymore. <laughs> and what he meant was he read a systematic hey. theology textbook. And I, like, I didn't really have much to say at that moment, but I was like, I don't like I personally, it's hard for me to grasp that because when I think of theology, if you use wisdom as a good example, it's like how to think about all of life, how to organize all of life and how to act in all of life. There's nothing I do that is not theological in reference point ultimately because it's the first principle the, the most ultimate principle and so like i just don't get it <laughs> like uh, like when i parent my children uh when i drive to work when i teach when i talk to someone everything is 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 underneath the highest science which is theology god so I, to me it's like one of those weird statements is like how can you say something like that like and especially as a pastor, like, I don't understand how you can be a pastor and not view your vocation as in part theological. Right. Meaning, like, I don't think you have to be like a professional theologian. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. But like theological in the sense of what does a shepherd do but guide sheep back to the pasture, keep them safe from wolves, etc. You're conveying them to green pastures and to living waters. Well, applied to pastoral ministry, you're conveying people to heaven. And they're there to know God. So you're teaching them to know God now to avoid not knowing God and to stay on that narrow path through the, the narrow gate yeah. on which they walk. So it's like, that's all theological work. Your shepherds 
staff is scripture, as it were. Right. And you're welding it according to the theological principles of scripture. Yeah, I tell my students, I said, like, you know, I teach a general education intro to theology course here at CCU. And I tell them, I'm like, what we're doing now, you know, as a Christian, you're going to do into eternity. Um, you, you don't stop studying God. And because he's infinite, that means you'll just be doing this forever, where we're just going to be continually just blown away by him. And, um, you know, why, why, would, why would you in this life want to stop that? Um, what you're going to just pick up again in, in eternity. I mean, I got this, here's a quote I want to give you here. So in when I, at the top of my syllabi in my introduction to introduction to theology class, I have like a quote. I do this for all my syllabi, various quotes. This one is by um, Franciscus Junius and his work, a treatise on true, on true theology, which is just a beautiful book. Junius himself is a beautiful human being. And uh, he has like a definition of what true theology is. And it's so similar to what Thomas is saying here. Uh, he says, uh, true theology is the highest wisdom and is marked by the greatest importance and value in itself and the greatest usefulness for us. If only we would receive it from the Lord with humility of mind and acknowledgement of our weakness. So, you know, he's making a distinction what true theology is, and he calls it the highest wisdom, right? And the value that theology has as this highest wisdom is that it's just what it is. Like it's values in itself. You're not studying theology I mean, yeah, sure, I've got like a degree on the wall and, you know, I'm teaching in an academic institution, but like the value of the study of theology is just the study of theology. Like that's, it's you know, and he says that it's, it's got this great usefulness for us because it's wisdom, but we have to receive it with humility. And it, because it's a right. gift from God, it's, it's just like Thomas it's is saying. It's a gift from God that helps it's you live. God that helps you live, you know? Up until about 100 years ago, just not to be cheesy, but the whole sort of like adventure of life was all integrated in terms of like you could be a Christian and philosophy is asking the big questions, but that was theological. Um, all the practical things in life were theological is all related to that. And it was much easier to do. Not that there was not, there was always arguments and things like that. Don't get me wrong. But today we've so segmented theology to like Wayne Grudem's textbook. Yeah. In this picture behind me. My favorite theologian, Gregory of Nyssa, holds up a sign that says, only wonder understands anything, which right. is a paraphrase of, uh, I think it's in Contra Eunomia's you know book too. I can't remember offhand. But his argument is, look, the, the simple language that we use in life, like God or son or, or human or Ian, <sighs> they are names, signs, they're important, but they really can't get us to the whole person. Like you and I can be talking but I don't know your internal life, the depth of how you feel at this moment, all of your experiences that make you you, your loves, your hates, your disagreements, your agreements. It's the same thing with your if you're married with your spouse, like you'll know them, but there's always something more deeper there. And so even human humans are kind of, from our perspective, an infinite depth of whatever. But how much more is God? And so really only wonder that that manner of coming to know under the idiom of wonder is everything. It was interesting. I was reading to my kid, my um, my family. I'm reading Lord of the Rings right now. And uh, Tolkien says that Tom Bombadil, a character in the first book, uh, the idea is that he speaks an, an older language, a language of awe and wonder. Uh. It sounds like nonsense to us because he sings all these kind of ditties and songs that are sort of silly. But it's just, it's the oldest language of awe and wonder. Yeah. And I think us as Christians today have, have sort of lost that. 
with all of our technology and all of our books and all of our data accumulation and, and intellects that we've tried to build, theology has become so constrained, so boring to, yeah. to many people. I'm not saying it is, but that's how it feels. But like for me, it's, or at least what I'm trying to think, it's this, it is this wisdom. It is this awe. It is this wonder of well, life. I, uh, on my philosophy syllabus, <laughs> I don't yeah. know why I'm talking about my syllabi today. I actually have the quote from Plato that says philosophy begins in wonder, you know, yeah. and and uh, and that that's a pretty it's a pretty common statement right throughout the tradition is that because that's who we are as humans. Right. God's built us to be amazed by things. You know, when you see this, you, know, you confront the sublime or you see beauty, you're interested in a really cool argument. You want to get, you know, find out more. That's just that's just who we are as humans. And, and so that's what philosophy is. And, and here, because because as Junius and Thomas are saying, theology is the truest wisdom more than so-called philosophy, which is to be the love of wisdom. Um, it, wonder has to drive everything. And if it's if you get like arid, boring theology, that's just systematizing. I mean, sometimes that's necessary, but um and it doesn't feel well, there's wonder. always two sides to learning. There is the sort of boring. You've got to yeah. learn grammar to know Greek. Like yeah. you don't discount that. Right. But the point is that once you understand these principles towards a greater end, towards a greater end. So, and so in article eight, which is um, just really the next page in our in our book. Yeah. He begins to make some interesting arguments. And there's one thing that I want to key in on. Uh, he talks about other sciences. They don't argue in proof of their principles. Uh, I think last class, last class, last podcast, <laughs> we talked about sciences. Like a science is that thing upon which you, you based on first principles, you make greater inferences. Yeah. So do not murder. And then you say, don't hire an assassin. Yeah. Right? So it's like, it's the idea that there's first principles you don't question for the sake of the science. But once you go further back, there's always an ultimate science, which might be metaphysics or theology. So um, he says, okay, that's true, but uh, um, so, but argue from other, their principles to demonstrate other truths in these sciences. So this doctrine does not argue in proof of its principles, which are the articles of faith, because they're revealed by God, but from them it goes on to prove something else. And this is really interesting to me. As the apostle, i.e. Paul, from the resurrection of Christ argues in proof of the general resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. And so what Aquinas, I think, is doing here is what later people will call good and necessary consequences. He's saying that when scripture, when faith reveals things to you, part of what theology is, is inferring what is necessary to deduce from this. So, for example, make it real easy. Uh, the Bible says that God the Father and God the Son co-created before anything. So what does that mean? And, the, and they, they share same activities and so on and the answer is they're both included in the definition of god now the bible doesn't have a sentence that says the father and son are included in the definition of god and yet they are straightforwardly yeah. so i think he's doing something like that it's just a really interesting uh, but then he gives first corinthians 15 as a uh, a sort of justification because in that passage paul says that jesus rose from the dead as the first fruit but if he's the first fruit of the resurrection how much yeah. more will we be the full culmination of this resurrection and the general resurrection that he goes through? Then he, then he has all these analogies of like seeds. And it's, you don't know what a seed is when it's planted, but when it grows up, you know what it is. And it's just a fascinating argument of Paul where you see that he's arguing in a similar way that Aquinas identifies him as arguing here. 
Well, I mean, and he's he's contrasting these different types of sciences, right? So other he's saying other sciences don't argue in proof of their principles, but argue from them to demonstrate their truths. So this doctrine does not argue in proof of its principles, which are the articles of faith, but from them. Like so, it's like whoa, it's right. like it's again like when we get we get into these debates today, these like cheesy Twitter debates about you know Thomas is being sold out to rationalism or something like it's like. What are you talking about? His start. He's telling us his starting point is actually the articles of the Christian faith. And, and that's where he's arguing from. He actually says um, at the end of this in reply to objection to that arguments from authority are the weakest, but the yeah. strongest form of argument is revelation of, of God. And because God reveals truth to us for sacred doctrine, that is uh, what we base our teaching on revelation. Yeah. Yeah. And he also says that many of these things are not accessible to reason. Therefore, he can't be a pure rationalist. The one caveat that he gives is that though you can't reason to the Trinity from nature, it's still, it's, it's a, you can defend the doctrine of the Trinity because it's reasonable. And the reason, and the answer is because God made everything. He's, he's internally consistent. If you were to argue that the Trinity is irrational or that any doctrine is irrational, it doesn't compare to nature or to, to any kind of thinking, you would be arguing that God is a contradiction, that he created right. something that, to contradict himself. And that yeah, is utterly and foolish and unchristian. Yeah, he's super, super <clears throat> irrational. It's not irrational, right? Right. It, I mean, you get like you get the language too in a reply to objection too, right? Uh, the 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 language that will become important for um, for Thomas and for the tradition, including Protestants. Uh, since therefore grace does not destroy nature but perfects it, natural reason should minister to faith as the natural bent of the will ministers to charity. Mm-hmm, yeah. You know? mm-hmm. There is, this is the relationship between theology and philosophy, faith and reason, right? God gives us these things in nature, but you need grace to be added to it, to understand it. And um, Can I read two sentences that are right before that? I think just going to help. So at the bottom of page 45, which is still article eight, he says, if our opponents believe, our opponent believes nothing of divine revelation, there is no longer any means of proving the articles of faith by reasoning but only of answering his objections if he has any against faith. And then no. the next sentence is pretty important. Since faith rests upon infallible truth, and since the contrary of a truth can never be demonstrated, it is clear that the arguments brought for, brought against faith cannot be demonstrations, but are difficulties that can be answered. No. In other words, infallible faith, because it comes from divine revelation, comes from God. And there, because it's just true for that reason, there can be no contrary demonstration. So a demonstration in more technical language here is demonstrating the truth of something. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he has in mind a syllogism, like a major minor, you know, whatever. But his point is you demonstrate something to show the truth of it. Yeah. And his and point is that there's infallible truth, which is God's revelation. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to like dive in, I just picked this up. Literally, I got the first volume yesterday and I was just been flipping through the table of contents of, of it. And it's like, oh, like Garagru's, this new um, Garagru Lagrange's new this new volume that came out last year. It's a two volume work, <laughs> massive uh, on divine revelation. He that the, the whole book is about this. Like the, the whole two volumes just deals with like kind of the nature of like what true apologetics is. Because that, that quote that you gave right um, on on forty five there. If our opponent believes nothing of divine revelation, there's no longer any means of proving the articles of faith by reasoning, but only of answering his objections. If he has any against faith, right? Is it kind of apologetics? You know, and you can um, answer objections because it's it's it is all reasonable. It all makes sense. It's just that you would never have accessed it on your own. Yeah, I'm just and I think that's so important. Sorry. Um, 
changing change in space here, man. I love how he quotes Second Corinthians ten five as well. He says that we should bring every thought captive into the obedience of Christ, which is a common citation in the 20th century for people who might disagree with Thomas. Oh, I'm going to pause this because Ian's audio has stopped. Oh, you're back. No, I just I had to plug it in because my laptop was dying. And it oh, okay. Sorry. Um, and then, yeah, this section ends. We read this last week, but the sacred doctrine is the incontrovertible proof and so on. I think that we should, in our last time, though, we should camp out on um, Article 9 and 10, probably 10 in particular. Yeah, let's talk about this, this idea of the, you know, what has become known as the fourfold sense of scripture. He doesn't exactly articulate it that way, but it's basically what he's saying, right? And under Article 10 in his, you know, the question is uh, whether in Holy Scripture a word may have several senses. And th this to me is so important for like how we approach Scripture today. Um, you know, we are, we are as even evangelical institutions, you know, we're trained in how, you know, I did Greek exegesis and, uh, you know, you do your hermeneutics classes where you're learning, you know, historical grammatical approaches to scripture and, and all that stuff, obviously super important. Um, but we, we, we have tended, I think within our traditions, at least to downplay what have been known as the other, other senses of scripture. Uh, and I think it's gotten us into all sorts of problems theologically, and and it doesn't actually help us read scripture the way scripture itself intends it intended itself to be read. Um, and so the way that Thomas articulates here, and I mean it's it's in short shrift, but it's so helpful in terms of like what what is the relationship between um, what he'll call the historical or literal sense that we refer to today as the historical grammatical uh, sense. And then the spiritual sense that has a threefold division to it. Um, and what I'm curious. Call it the application of scripture today. Yeah. So I'm curious yeah. to, to, for you, like, because we've not really talked about this. Um, you know, you're, you're somebody who's Old Testament PhD. Um, you know, you know the languages and uh, tra trained up in an, you know, a good institution that, that would have taught you the, the historical grammatical approach. Yet you're also somebody who's, you know, master's, one of your master's degrees is in patristics. And so you've read the fathers, you know, you're saying Gregory is one of your favorites. Um, so how do you think through like what Thomas is saying here in terms of the relationship between historical grammatical approaches to scripture and then these other senses and how, how, how what's he saying, how we should use them? And, and like, do you, you find it useful personally? Well, I think Peter Kreft is exactly right in one of his footnotes where he says that there's a metaphysical truth behind the what uh, Aquinas is saying. So let me try to like summarize what I think he's saying just hyper briefly, kind of sure. the dumb guy summary. He says, when you read the words of the Bible, they have one sense. It's not, there's no contradiction, but because God made everything, the things that the Bible talks about, whether that's the tabernacle, the sun, the moon, the stars, God made the stars to manifest his glory. God made the tabernacle to point towards the new covenant. Just for example, in Hebrews 10 verse one, which Aquinas cites, um, Hebrews says that the tabernacle itself, the old covenant rather, is a shadow of the reality to come. And then uh, Hebrews goes on to argue that if you go into the tabernacle and you look at the veil between the most holy place and the holy place, that actually is the flesh of Christ. It says the, the veil or the curtain is the flesh of Christ. Yeah. Now the is there is because the, the curtain is a literal curtain, but because God made the curtain to signify something else, that there's a double meaning there. So Aquinas says the words of scripture have one basic literal sense, 
But when they refer to things like the tabernacle or to a mountain or to the sea, they signify something more because in the Bible, the sea and in creation, God made the sea to signify the place of chaos where the beasts arise. That's why they come out of the sea in Revelation, Daniel, Psalms, Job, etc. Uh, right? The chaos of the original creation that God brings order to. God made the world this way so that those things have a signification. Yeah, Heavens declare the glory of God day by day, night by night. So his argument is literal sense means the words signify whatever they literally signify. But because they talk about mountains, which are uh, signify the power of God, for example, those things have further meaning. Now, that requires a metaphysical belief about the nature of created reality. Did God make everything? Yes. And if he made everything, did he do it for a reason? Yes. If you can answer yes to both of those questions, then the fourfold sense of scripture is not only necessary, but it's the only way to read it. Right. In other words, if I was allowed to clarify what I mean by my words, I would say it this way. Christians must read the Bible allegorically or they're not reading it as Christians. Again, what do I mean by allegory? Simply what I just said. God made the tabernacle and intended it to reflect an eternal reality on in the heavenly places. Exodus 25, 40 tells you exactly that. Hebrews 9, 10, and 8, 9, and 10 explain how that works. All the elements of the tabernacle are things that themselves have symbolic meaning. So when Moses or Aaron or whatever refers to the curtain or to the menorah, or to the altar, or to the cherubim over the, uh, the the seat. Those things have further meaning that should draw you into the symbolic world. Christ is our Passover lamb. Passover lamb was always meant to be a thing that signifies the future Passover lamb. It's a lamb and the thing that signifies. We call it typology today, but uh, Aquinas calls it allegory, and so did everyone else, and I think that's just right. Yeah. I mean, Paul does this, right? Galatians 4, he actually uses the language of allegory when he's describing these two mountains that are law and gospel, really, um, you know, Sarah and Hagar, and um, and and he he can do it. He knows what he's doing. And it, I think that the 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 purely like his like obviously like the, the tradition, including Thomas, including Luther, um, anybody who holds the fourfold sense will say that the the historical what we call a, like the historical grammatical they would call the literal sense is the ground right like it's the, it, it's it's going to set some boundaries so that you can't just allegorize into anything um and but nevertheless like you have to have those other senses uh the spiritual sense because if you don't you're just not going to you're just going to botch your reading of, of of a text of scripture like you're not going to understand you know aspects of like Christ's own life uh, how can he fulfill certain scripture passages where you're like, this does not seem like a one-to-one literal reading of a, of, of an Old Testament no, text. I mean, First Corinthians, Christ. Christ is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. In right. Five, Jesus led Israel to the wilderness. You're not going to get there unless you understand the meaning of creation that God made, who he is, and how he's intended signify, he intended meaning to be in everything. Now, I want to just quickly note, because someone hearing this might be like, well, did not the reformers as a whole, reject the fourfold sense of scripture. And I would say like, for sure that in the 15th century, the fourfold use that was in its, in the regular academic settings, maybe was a bit cheesy and divided up and they rejected that really cheesy school men approach. 
but you can't read any, I don't think any of the reformers and say that they only read it according to what we call the historical grammatical sense. Pointedly, the Christological sense is just the same thing as the allegorical sense, mostly. Um, if you want to read, uh, is it Franciscus Junius? I can't remember. He calls it the mystical sense, you know, Christ in the church and so on. The Christological sense would be more like how Calvin approaches it. But Calvin himself will read the book of Kings as about the church. And you're yeah. like, okay, give me a break. Like all the reformers do. Like if, if you're like, okay, so Calvin only reads it as a dispensationalist, but the book of Kings is about uh, the Protestant Reformation. You're like, uh-huh. Yeah, buddy. Well, the <laughs> mystical sense. And I think it's Franciscus Junius. I'm trying to remember which person is that says that it might be a different person. The yeah. mystical sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Yeah. That's only the merely dispensational sense. Um, In fact, the reformers would all read. I can't think of an exception. Now, Luther has one letter that I'm just popping to my mind where he goes to town on the literal sense is the only one. But you got to remember, actually, Aquinas is the exact same thing, that the literal sense is, is the sense upon which all doctrine is based off of. All the other senses are more like helpful. They bring you to Christ or whatever. But I want to get to this. Um, Luther doesn't actually do. Luther does all this, too. Luther does all what we would call. He says that Christ is the baby hidden in the Old Testament and all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Here, allegor you know, allegory, allegory, like, like read the pure, like, like read the Puritans on Song of Songs. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, am I going to say something controversial? By the way, you no. Uh, there was an article on the on the TGC USA recently about uh, sex and its and its meaning. Um, it was completely normal in the history of the church. The article itself was a bit cringy and and was inappropriate in how it communicated some truths, but it was attacked for being. Um, is attacked for being abuse enabling and all about male pleasure and all this kind of stuff, which I don't think it was. I've never read it. So, but part of, I think part of the critique, and I don't I want to be sensitive because I think there were, there was some language in the article that I can kind of see why people critiqued it. But part of it was a, a complete forgetfulness of the nature of created reality that it, they are God created things to signify beyond themselves. And part of it was a forgetfulness that the reformers, the Puritans, the medievals, the patristics, Paul, the apostles read scripture in a way that was not grossly literal. Yeah. So that when James talks about the living seed born in us, or when first John says that God's seed is in us, nobody's thinking about grossly over literalizing physical seed or semen. Right. They're thinking of the power of procreation that in itself is a, is a deep symbol of our new birth. And that's how God made reality. And so if you don't read it that way, the, the wonder, the awe of new creation, the fact that a woman can have two souls in one body can mediate life and grow it within her, that Mary herself was able to have a womb wider than heaven to contain both the infinite and the finite. All these things become merely literalized and grossified and sexualized and it's stupid song yeah. of songs is easily about christ and his church of course it is i mean the whole the whole the whole book ends in chapter eight and it says that love is as strong as the fire of yahweh but you're like but well, that's that unlocks the meaning doesn't it there you go <laughs> right but god's i i might have missed i might have missed uh quoted the exact phrase in, so, in song of songs eight but the whole thing ends by naming love and associate it with the love of Yahweh. And then we read it as if it's merely human love. And that human love is not a thing that signifies beyond itself. See, that's what Aquinas knew. That's yeah. what everyone knew before this time. Human love isn't merely this 
fleshly, literal, straightforward, whatever. We're not nominalists. We're realists. Things signify. So if I, anyways, I, I might have, um, are you we didn't familiar really read as much. Go are ahead. you familiar with the book? I haven't read it yet. Oh, I have it. I've had it for years. And I, I, I need to jump into it. But um, it's a book called, uh, it's by Michael Legaspi. And it's called The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies. It's in that series that um, with Ox- Oxford Studies and Historical Theology that Richard Muller edit, is one of the editors on. And like I've, I've looked at the book and um, he, he's tra- tracing this whole thing about like how the rise of, of biblical studies has kind of destroyed the text of scripture, the way Christians have intended to read it. I'm not against biblical studies by any stretch of the imagination when it's done right. Um, but nevertheless, like it, we we've we're, we are we are downstream of enlightenment scientific approaches to texts. And and then as evangelicals, we think we meld that with sola scriptura and think that this is the the Protestant way to read the Bible. And, and it really isn't. And it, it goes back to the questions, you know, of, of that, that somebody like David Steinmetz and his work on pre-critical exegesis was working through is that like, we, we need the richer, deeper meanings of the text that are grounded in the literal. Can I, let's, we should read the, the section. Right. Maybe I'll just read this bit. Yeah, maybe read. Um, and then we can kind of end it. by reading just having some last comments. Yeah. So he's, this is on um, uh, under his, I answer that from the 10th article uh, where he says that I answer that the holy, the author of Holy writ is God in whose power it is to signify his meaning, not by words only as man also can do, but also by things themselves. We've been saying, uh, so whereas in every other science, things are signified by words. This science has the property that the things signified by the words have themselves also a signification. Therefore, that first signification whereby words signify things belongs to the first sense, which he then says is the historical or literal, which we would call historical grammatical. Um, that signification thereby, uh, whereby things signified by words have themselves also a signification is called the spiritual sense, and uh, which is based, based on the literal and presupposes it. Now, this spiritual sense has a threefold division, for as the apostle says in Hebrews 10.1, the old law is a figure of the new law. And as Dionysius, here's thinking of what we would who we refer to as pseudo-Dionysius in his celestial hierarchy, says the new law is itself a figure of future glory. Again, in the new law, whatever our head has done, and this is referencing Christ's head, whatever our head has done is a type of what we ought to do. Therefore, so far as the things of the old law signify the things of the new law, there is also, uh, there is the allegorical sense. So far as the things done in Christ, or so far as the things which signify Christ are types what we ought to do, there is the moral sense. But so far as they signify what relates to eternal glory, there is the anagogical sense, or what we call eschatological. Can I I quickly pause you, then then finish reading? I just want to say, like, when he says allegorical sense, here's what he means. In Numbers, they raised up a pole with a snake on it, and everyone who saw it was healed. John says that symbolized Christ raised up on the cross. The literal sense points to the pole and the snake, but that thing itself is an image of something further. That's allegory. It is not, you just make up whatever interpretation you want, mumbo jumbo. It is what the thing itself means. Right. Yeah, there's a clear. I just want to make sure because that word I think is a trigger word sometimes for for an obviously anyone can use allegory how they want, but that's how 
Christians use allegory, at least in this it's, tradition. It, it's funny that Junius keeps coming up here, but it's this distinction, right, that you make between like ectypal theology and archetypal theology. And right. and, see, and, it, and again, it goes back to typology as well. But okay, so since the literal sense is that which the author intends, and since the author of Holy Writ is God, who by one act comprehends all things by his intellect, it is not unfitting, as Augustine says in Confessions 12, if even according to the literal sense, one world word in Holy Writ should have several senses. Um, I don't but, but read the next part, actually. I think it clarifies really well. In the reply, in the reply to yeah. objection one, uh, the multiplicity of these senses does not produce equivocation or any other kind of multiplicity. But the, the, uh, seeing that these uh, senses are not multiplied because one word signifies several things. But because this, the things signified by the words can be themselves types of other things. Which I think is the key. Yeah. Thus, in Holy Writ, no confusion results, for all the senses are founded on one, the literal, from which alone, alone. Uh, uh, what, yeah, from which alone, interesting, uh, can any argument be drawn, and not from those intended in allegory, as Augustine says in one of his epistles. Nevertheless, nothing of Holy Scripture perishes on account of this, since nothing necessary to faith is contained under the spiritual sense, which is else, not elsewhere put forward by the Scripture in its literal sense. We call that the doctrine of divine perspicuity, <laughs> right? It's perspicuous on the on the things we need to know. There's no confusion here, guys. But then there's like this deeper richness to things found in the literal that actually explains and makes the literal even more deep. And can I just make it like maybe this to really simplify? Here's how I here's what I think he means, and maybe I'm slightly off, but here's what I think he means. You're reading Exodus, and you say Moses talks about the Passover lamb that substitutes, you know, for the firstborn or whatever. And then you think, but that Passover lamb, that object also allegorically speaks of Christ. So Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, right? So the one word Passover lamb, that literal sense has two senses because the thing, the Passover lamb signifies further, right. but the literal sense is still the one sense. It's still the one thing the text says, but it includes the object of the real thing in creation, the real literal created Passover lamb. That itself God intended to mean Christ. So the two senses, literal and allegorical, are not equivocating. And, and think of what you lose if you can't read it that way. That, that's all I mean by allegory, by the way. Like that, when I yeah. say like you have to read it that way because, and I don't mean allegory like you just make up things and throw it everywhere. Right. Like just that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I got it right. It just makes the Bible a, a more like obviously defined book. You know, it's just, oh, wow. So well, it, just, doing? it includes that God created everything. Like, it's yeah. almost like, oh, the pa obviously a Passover lamb is just a lamb. It can't mean anything else. And you're like, because some Israelites, you know, used it years ago. And you're like, but is God not the creator? Is he not the providential father? Is this not a universe of God's glory in Calvin's words? Is not every square inch of the created order screaming, yelling that this is mine? Does not Ooh, the blood... Abraham Kuyper. Yeah, 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 Kuyper. Kuyper. <laughs> I, mean, I was just teaching on Kuyper this week, so... Wow. <laughs> uh, I think today's Bob Inc. Um, but you, if we believe that, then... And if we believe that the Psalms... What the Psalms say, that the universe, that the heavens declare the glory of God wordlessly... How can we not think of this? How can you not see a mountain and say that represents the power and splendor of God? How can you not see the sky and think this reminds me that the Lord is in, in the heavens above me? 
Why would you why would you want to look at the sky and be like, that's an interesting biodome? <laughs> like, obviously that's true scientifically. I'm not trying to say like you can't look right. at the ozone layer or whatever, but like, why would you why would you want to stop there? Yeah. Like, what's the point of a world that there's no awe and wonder anymore? We want to be Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil reads the scripture allegorically. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. Tolkien would love it. 